Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, and I'm really looking forward to this week's broadcast. Each week, we try to present you with the most diverse group of panelists and speakers that one can find anywhere. These range from theologians to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, politicians, you name it. If they've written a book, we're going to have them on air talking about it. And by the way, we're not going to follow a scripted, organized discussion, but rather have a free-form discussion so that we can talk about the things that are top of mind, and more importantly, ask the questions that you would probably have asked yourself. Feel free to recommend the show to friends and colleagues, and with that, let's get on with this week's edition of Unhedged. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Frank Trois, and I'm here again with another segment of Unhedged. And I have with me today and this week, Mr. Zenon Capron. Sir, how are you today? Great. Thanks for having me, Frank. Looking forward to our chat. Yeah. How are you? Uh, how are you holding up? I mean, with the festival last week, have you managed to catch up on your sleep? I knew I was busy. I can't even imagine how busy you were. Yeah, it was. It was one of those weeks that was really hectic. Um, and on the back of Cybos, which happened a couple months ago, and, and Money 2020 US, it was really busy for us. Um, obviously, we, you know, with our footprint in Asia, the Singapore FinTech Festival is one of the more important events and probably the most important event in the calendar. And I think this year it didn't disappoint. Uh, it was packed during the week with, with content and uh, networking and meetings and opportunities, as well as obviously in the evening with all of the extracurricular activities that were happening out and outside and around the festival as well. It was it was pretty intense. So uh, glad to uh, effectively come out the other end of that in one piece and, and be ready to actually get back to regular work as well. How, how would you categorize the the uh, the two festivals? I mean, if you compare the, the U.S. event relative to the Singapore event, I mean, in terms of size and content, how, how would you categorize both of them? I, th- I think the, the conversations are dramatically different at both of them, and and for good reason. I mean, the Money 2020 USA is predominantly a U.S.-focused event, so a lot of the topics and issues that they're looking at are obviously focused on that market. I think the thing that struck me about the FinTech Festival, the, the Singapore FinTech Festival this year, was the sheer internationality of yeah. the festival. And, and, you know, it wasn't so much, okay, come to Singapore and set up your FinTech here. It was more of a global discussion. So we saw, uh, you know, FinTech Turkey meeting with FinTech Latam. Uh, we had conversations about China with Enterprise Ireland. Uh, you know, that it, it, it almost has become a forum for international players to come together. Now, that's obviously in the context of Asia, which I would argue is, is really the reality of where FinTech is making the greatest impact globally. Uh, but 
certainly in general, you know, the the scope of the conversation in terms of the geographical scope of the conversation has increased dramatically. And, and that was certainly one of the key takeaways I had from the event. Now, for the benefit of our users, the the because um, again, we, we do have a predominant part of our user base uh, back in the United States. And, you know, as you and I have gotten to know one another, so for the sake of a slight infomercial, uh, you know, vis-a-vis Capra and Asia, uh, in addition to myself, our our peers out here in, in Southeast Asia, you know, you are considered one of the leading, if not the leading, uh, researchers, analysts, and commentators on fintech. So I, I, you know, again, I I keep having to pinch myself whenever you and I have a chance to talk because your perspective is tremendous, and and there's not a session where I don't come away with it with a takeaway. And 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 with that, you know, the I I I also had the sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, that back in the the states that the U.S. fintechs are finally starting to recognize the significance of what's happening in Asia and and by corollary, you know what's happening in Southeast Asia and and you know you and I have talked a lot about you know what that looks like and how the Chinese are reacting to it, but especially given the back to back conferences, I mean, what were some of the conversations that you were having with folks, uh, especially in the states regarding Asia? Yeah, so I was um, fortunate enough this year at Money 2020 in the U.S. there in Las Vegas to chair and uh, moderate some sessions as part of the Asia Track. So the Asia Track is something relatively new that they've done for the past couple of years. And on the Sunday uh, of the event, so the event typically goes Sunday through Wednesday. So on the first day of the event, the Asia stage was actually really conveniently located right at the top of the escalators as you came through registration. So. For most of that Sunday afternoon or morning and afternoon, it was quite packed. Um, the morning was focused mainly on Asia, and then in the afternoon it was LATAM. And I think the the size of the audience was kind of indicative of the new attention that people are placing on what's happening in Asia. You know, our thesis as Capra in Asia has always been that Asia or that fintech is a global discussion, but an Asian reality. I mean, when you look at the level of disruption that's happening in other markets as compared to Asia, it just doesn't compare. And so that conversation started off with China and has expanded across the rest of Asia. So a lot of the conversations were, okay, what's next for these fintechs? Where are they coming next? And can we accept? Can we expect to see the same business models in other markets? Because clearly what Ant Financial and Tencent have done with the Alipay and WeChat Pay platforms has created really a lifestyle app that traditional financial players or even fintechs outside of those two struggle to match. And so finally, there's a lot more interest in what's happening around that. And, and I think with some of the innovations that we're starting to see in Western markets, uh, you, know, you have companies like PayPal and Stripe and Square that are coming to market with more innovative models. Uh, it becomes a lot more interesting in those markets as well. But yeah, a lot of the conversations were, what, what, what does this mean for us? What do the expansion of these Asia platforms mean for us in the U.S.? How, how should the U.S. companies be thinking about this? Because if I took a kind of a, and again, if I allow us to not get into the political scene in D.C. and all the subsequent drama, but I, a lot of people talk about China as a closed system. Uh, you have Eric Schmidt even talking about two systems. So for the U.S. base of companies, should they be looking at Asia as a systemic threat to them back in the domestic market in the U.S.? That's question one. And or question two, do they say, hey, Asia is something we need to focus on. 
Uh, we could probably take our technology to, to the levels of creativity and innovation we really want to. But you know what? We need to write off China because the reality is the fast track for us is going to be Southeast Asia uh, in terms of an open market. So A, how should they be thinking about it in terms of a, a domestic threat? And B, you know, is it worthwhile for them to be thinking about it in an expansionary framework? That's a great question. I, I think the critical thing, first of all, is understanding what's happening in Asia. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, people, when I started talking about China or Asia, people would just poo-poo it and not really pay attention and say, that doesn't matter for our markets. So I think the first thing that people need to do, any uh, professional within the financial industry from a financial institution or to a, a fintech needs to understand what's happening in Asia markets, because regardless if it impacts you either with your inbound or outbound strategies, it is something that is impacting the industry in a pretty substantial way. So I think that's the baseline for either of those use cases. It's true. I mean, again, not to get into the weeds around the trade situation right now, but that's made things even more challenging. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was um, lucky enough to be invited to D.C. to testify in front of Congress about uh, issues around China fintech and market access. And that was right around the time that Ant Financial was looking at the MoneyGram acquisition. And it's really difficult to argue that Ant Financial at that point could have been allowed to access the U.S. payment market because mm -hmm. the players like the Visa, MasterCard, American Express, PayPal had very little access to the Chinese market. Um, certainly, they were processing international transactions, but in terms of processing domestic renminbi transactions, they didn't have that level of market access. And that's still quite limited today. And even though we see that PayPal has made some acquisitions, MasterCard and American Express have JV opportunities in the market, they're starting to get a little bit more traction in the market, but there is still a lot of market protectionism that is preventing you know, a smooth entry into these markets. So as you rightly pointed out, for a lot of fintechs or financial institutions, Southeast Asia is a nice alternative. I mean, certainly when you look at a country like Singapore, the market is small, but the regulations are very clear. It's very easy to set up a company. It's very easy to reach the market here. So it's a good starting point for a lot of fintechs or institutions in Asia. But obviously, the markets of Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, the surrounding markets are a lot more interesting from a, a market size perspective. So, you know, the, the, the these countries have a lot of challenges around financial inclusion, and they clearly see fintech as being a way of transforming that and, and, and bringing more people into the economic fold. So many of these countries are very open to the idea of fintechs coming in and, and helping them make that change. So in many ways, Southeast Asia has become a lot more attractive than uh, China. And, and just a personal anecdote, I mean, I moved to Singapore just over a year ago, and when I left China... After living there for 14 years, I thought, wow, this is going to be really boring to move to Southeast Asia. But I've experienced anything but boredom since I've been here because there's so much that's happening. When you look at uh, you know, payments infrastructure like real-time payments, the PayNow system here in Singapore, the cross-border real-time payments that Ripple and Swift and a number of other players are looking at, there's so much happening in Southeast Asia that it really is a vibrant market for all aspects of fintech. And, and, and that's keep it certainly very interesting for us, uh, for me as an individual and us as a company, as well as providing significant opportunities for fintechs or other players to come into the market. I want to take uh, something you alluded to there a, a step further, and, and I'm going to use a really silly metaphor where I was in the movie theater the other day, and in the trailers, there was an advertisement for Nespresso, you know, the, the coffee company. 
And ironically, it was with the U.S. actor George Clooney. And the, and the ad was completely ridiculous. But it, And I commented to my wife, I said, you know, that ad would never air in the United States. You would never see that, you know, because of all the consequences to George Clooney as a brand. But here he can get away with it. You know, and you, sometimes you see other actors, you know, advertising vodka and what have you. And, you know, it, what was what was funny and the, the irony of how this dovetails to some of this fintech discussion is that, you know, if if I was a U.S. CEO looking at the Asian market, how much of the U.S. paradigm? And again, this is a I'm going to be asking you a question, but I'm asking really asking you another question. How much of the U.S. paradigm in terms of morality and ethics actually would hinder that company's success in the region? And I'll give you a more practical example. So in San Francisco, as you know, they banned uh, uh, facial recognition because they considered it a form of uh, racial profiling. Whereas you and I both know in China, that's fairly almost ubiquitous as, as, as a technology. So for these U.S. companies, do they take the approach of, hey, I'm going to be like George Clooney. I'm not going to disparage the brand in the U.S., but maybe I do in another market, you know, take, take it a step further. And, you know, and as an American business, do, as you come to Southeast Asia, do you have the ability to kind of maybe widen some of the constraints that you would otherwise have looked at? Uh, whereas in the States, you might not be able to do it for morality, ethics, what have you. Whereas in Southeast Asia or in Asia in general, there might be more leeway. Uh, around some of those variables. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I wanted to start off kind of with the business model and importing business models because I, and then I'll talk about the morality in just a second, but I mean the we we like to say that the road to China is littered with the corpses of technology companies that have failed to execute. If you look at PayPal, if you look at Visa, if you look at a lot of the other players in the market, there when they first came into the Chinese market, there was nothing to stop them from executing. Um, but they brought international business models and international norms to the Chinese market, which didn't always fit. At the time that PayPal came into the market around 2005, 2004, 2005, uh, Taobao was just getting started. Jack Ma's Alibaba platform and Taobao were focused on getting SMEs onto the platform, which is very much what eBay was trying to do uh, around the same time with PayPal as the underlying payments infrastructure. But rather than catering that experience to a local consumer, eBay decided to just import the model from foreign markets. And by doing that, they, they completely eschewed the average Chinese merchant and consumer who was used to, first of all, listing for free on the Taobao platform, and then having that customer experience being very tailored to a Chinese consumer. Because this is something that Alibaba and Taobao and Tmall were looking at every day, is how do we sell better to Chinese consumers? So you know, when we, when we look at how companies are expanding internationally, I think, I think the first question is, what is the model that they're using in these markets? And you know, PayPal has been very successful in Anglophone markets, in Australia, in um, Europe, and in the US, but really struggled in mainland China. Now, they've had a tremendous amount of success for the cross-border side of the business, but just by, bringing, just by having a solid business model that works in other locations and bringing that to Asia doesn't necessarily mean success in Asian markets. And similarly to that, I mean, you bring up a good point around the ethics and the morality of a lot of the practices here in Asia. The first thing I would say is that times are changing. You know, the, the, the times 10 or 15 years ago when you had to question your ethics or your morality to actually do business in some of these markets was certainly there. And, and you know, we have, being in the region for a long time, numerous war stories of ourselves or companies that have been put into situations where 
you really had to question some fundamentals around that. And my personal opinion is that you bring your beliefs with you and you have to bring your, your, your ethics and your social norms with you wherever you are. And so indeed, you know, when we've done business in China, we've had to turn down business that we weren't comfortable with. And that's not even thinking about the regulatory requirements that uh, the U.S. government puts on around the, uh, the Corrupt Practices Act and, and numerous other regulations that could get me in trouble as a U.S. citizen in these markets as well. But that's changing very rapidly. I think you know more and more uh, doing business in Southeast Asia and in China is as you would do business anywhere else in the world. Uh, there's a lot more attention by regulators and governments. You know, in Malaysia with the 1MDB, there's a lot more attention around money laundering and, and tax evasion in these countries. Although you know political will is a big challenge in, in these markets. But there's a lot more focus on, okay, how can we make this right? And how can we do business in a way that would be acceptable in foreign markets? So I think, you know, certainly it's definitely something that needs to be on the minds of any director that brings their company to Asia, because uh, it does still happen. And it would be wrong to say it doesn't happen. But I think the 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 importance or the the stress around that is not what it was a decade ago. I think it's become much more easier to do business in Asia without having to worry about the the ethics of um, the work that you're doing, because a lot of times it just doesn't come up. How, how would you then, so if you had a whiteboard and you were sitting in front of a, the, the C-suite at a given financial services entity or, or slash fintech, and the question came to you, okay, what do I need to think about you know, as we cross the Pacific? What, what, what would you say to them would be the keys to success in, in terms of, of, of implementation? And then around that geographically, where would you have them plant the flag first? So like what would be the one, two, three countries where you would say, you know, th this is where I would keep the focus and, and this is what I would want to achieve? Ironically, I've got a huge whiteboard in front of me that's completely blank right now, but I don't have the C-suite <laughs> in front of me to actually present. But I, I think the first thing is... Uh, making sure that we're addressing the points of friction. Uh, you know, when you look at Alipay and Tencent uh, with a WeChat Pay product, they were from the very beginning addressing points of friction in the marketplace. As a financial industry, we're often too blinded by shiny objects. You know, we say blockchain, AI, and we're distracted by the technology and we forget about the actual business model and the point that we're trying to solve. And a lot of the most innovative models and successful models that we've seen here in Asia are really focused on solving the issues for the consumers or the businesses that are using the financial industry. So, you know, the original use of Alipay was to solve the issue of trust in financial services and e-commerce in China. Uh, then they moved on to QR codes. Uh, when you make a card transaction in China, that's an incredibly friction-filled transaction. You have to wait often a minute because it's chip pin and signature for a card transaction. So by using QR codes, they're addressing the friction in that transaction. So I think the first thing is really understanding where the points of friction are and can your product or service solve that. I think the second thing is understanding the consumers as well. It's because, you know, I've had conversations that have worked that with people that have worked for some of these large tech companies like Snapchat, Instagram, and TikTok. And when I sit down with them and I understand the platform, I, after 40 minutes of sitting down with a friend who used to work for Snapchat, showed me pictures of his kids with googly eyes, with animated pigs jumping around in the background. I finished that conversation and I still didn't understand what the point of Snapchat was. But I'm not the person that needs to understand that. It's the millennials that understand that and are using that in everyday market. What's critical uh -huh. for me as a financial professional is to understand why they are using it. 
I may not use it myself. I may not understand why people are using it, but I better understand how they're using it and how they're taking it to market. Because increasingly it's that digital native consumer in China that is using these platforms. And if we don't understand who they are and how they use them, we're at a loss. And I think that's one of the other challenges that a lot of these companies have is they just don't understand how individuals are using these platforms. So I think that's a critical thing. In terms of the country, it, it really comes down to market size and the development of the industry. You know, when I look at countries like Indonesia, Indonesia is a very attractive country right now for many different reasons. And so we're seeing a lot of growth in fintech in Indonesia from everything from point of sale financing to peer-to-peer -peer lending to more traditional financial models. So with Indonesia and Malaysia looking at potentially launching virtual banks in the next couple of years. And that market just by its sheer size is very interesting. Uh, India as well. In India, just from a population perspective, the, the amount of work that the Indian government has done over the past couple of years to bring, bring people into the financial fold so that we have a lot less unbanked in India. In 2014, about 70% of the population was unbanked. In 2017, that number is down to about 40%. Now, not everybody's using that bank account, but that's tremendous progress in that country as well. So I get really excited when I look at the huge population numbers and the huge opportunity to make change in a lot of these countries, especially in Southeast Asia. I think a lot of that conversation has shifted from greater China, especially with the challenges around the trade war and the current Hong Kong situation, to Southeast Asia and, and what can be executed here. And then you have you know very supportive regulators like uh, the MAS here, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, that is really um, driving the conversation forward, both in their own backyard and, and all around the region. How, how real is the inclusion discussion? Uh, you know, the, I, I had a fascinating discussion this morning, and I'll keep the individual nameless, where we were talking about this. this um, the irony of sustainability is that for some, the, the math may not work, that, that sustainability might not be sustainable. Uh, when, when you really start to take a hard look at it. And, and out here, there's a huge discussion. And again, you and I have talked about this a lot offline, but regarding inclusion, the benefits, I mean, how real of a phenomenon is that in terms of, and I'm not the underbanked, I mean, the unbanked, you know, in terms of the world's poor in the countries that you're talking about and getting them online and into the system. Yeah, and that's something that we've been exploring quite a bit as well and kind of refining our thesis around it because, you know, when you look at the products like Alipay and WeChat Pay and what they've done for financial inclusion in China, it's pretty miraculous. And indeed today, you know, if you want to be a merchant, you need to have a device that can scan, that has the ability to scan a QR code. So a very simple smartphone. And, and to be able to scan a QR code, you need a 3.2 megapixel camera, as we just figured out over the last couple of weeks, which you can buy for $50 in China. So you can buy a fully functioning Android phone for $50 that allows you to get into the financial ecosystem. So if you are underbanked, or even as you mentioned, unbanked, uh, you know there is your channel. Now, saying that everybody will have a smartphone is is quite big and you know once you get into the third and fourth tier cities in china as well as other areas around the region the level of technology penetration as well as the infrastructure the technology infrastructure just isn't at the same level it is in china and so certainly on the digital side of things the idea of digital financial inclusion has really helped uh you know in terms of moving money around in terms of access to capital and lending 
it's been amazing and, and driven a lot of growth, not just in China, but in Southeast Asia as well. But the challenge is that last mile. How do you actually connect to the people that are out of the technology ecosystem and don't have access to the technology to be able to use in platforms? How to access them is the big question. And, and that's something that we're working on on a couple of the projects that we're looking at right now with the UN and some other organizations is really how do you address that? I mean, it's fine that you have blockchain-enabled cross-border payment systems and you have Swift's GPI that allows you to move money around the world faster. But what does that mean for an individual in the hinterlands of Indonesia or India that doesn't have access to 3G or even 4G or uh, you know access to a bank or any kind of technology? How do we bring them into the financial ecosystem? So, you know, to a certain extent, I, th I feel like we've done a lot with what we have. I mean, the ability to use digital platforms to promote financial inclusion. I think we've done well at that. And, you know, we're still going through that for, for you know, to provide that sustainability over long term. But the bigger question for me is that that last mile, essentially, of the financially excluded, how do we address that and how do we bring them in? And that's really where the challenge lies. And as part of that, if we, if we get into the weeds just a little bit, you know, when you look at financial inclusion, I always my knee jerk is always the telcos. So back to your point, if, if the phones are ubiquitous at the end of the day, the telcos in theory should be in the best position given their, their proximity to the consumer to, to actually make a difference in that. But, but it, it seems to have been an enigma because as obvious as that looks on paper, and again, without naming names, but you know who I'm referring to, it's, it's puzzling like why they, they're sitting right at the fulcrum of this and yet, you know, they just can't seem to get it done. And part of, you know, so is that a strategic issue for the telcos or is that just simply a tactical issue that, you know, wait, you know, they're telcos and they can't execute. That's just the way that it is. Yeah, you know, I would I would have originally argued that it was a tactical issue, but with the way that regulations are opening up and the way that, uh, you know, pretty much any kind of company can get or at least apply for, you know, a payments license or a stored value license. And in many cases, many of the telcos already have that in place. You know, I, I think we have seen a lot of success with the telcos in other parts of the world. I mean, obviously the M-Pesa was, it was uh, originally True. kind of a techno, a, a, a telco driven uh, model that has been and remains incredibly successful. But as you rightly point out, we don't have a lot of um, flag bearers here in Asia of telcos that have really taken that up. Not to say that they're not focusing on it. I mean, I think all of the Singapore telcos here, um, at least Singtel for sure, has a footprint in Southeast Asia that they're looking at and, and trying to promote financial inclusion. So it's a really good question. I think there's a lot of challenges around that, you know, for organizations like a traditional financial institution or a telco that have really rested on their laurels. And, you know, uh, essentially these businesses for many years have been monopolies. Uh, you know, even here in Singapore, when we look at the ATM penetration, it's, it's 90, 95% is controlled by the three big banks. And so when you have that level of, uh, or lack of competition and that level of kind of monopolistic practices in the market, which I should say, it's not a criticism just of Singapore. I mean, if you look at any market around the world, whether it be the UK or Hong Kong, you typically have between three to five banks that control 90 to 95% of the banking businesses in those countries. And now, you know, we're facing this new era where you have these digital banks that are coming in that are offering value, valuable products and services, as well as third-party financial players like Ant Financial and, and Tencent that are really trying to address that 
those underserved consumers in the market. And so I think just for a telco or a financial institution to be equipped with the talent, the technology and the team to actually take that forward is very challenging. And so I think that inertia has kind of played on their inability to really take advantage of what's happening in the markets around Asia, specifically around financial inclusion. So David, I want to ask you two more questions. And, and one of which is if we can get into one layer deeper in Singapore, many, especially our viewers in the US are probably unaware of the Digibank license process that's occurring right now. And you allude, you said something earlier that I want to go back to when we talk about, you know, how competitive is this market? And again, I'm going to keep the institution anonymous as well as their CEO, but it was interesting of late to hear one of the better known CEOs of one of the better known uh, incumbent banks, uh, ironically start to say that they feel that the field is uh, no longer competitive because the neo banks that are coming after these licenses are issued are going to be able to compete unfairly uh, in, in, in this market. And how relative to what happened in Hong Kong, how significant is this in terms of hypothetically a ride share now becoming a neobank or a telco becoming a neobank? And what does that mean for the, the incumbents in the market in terms of, is this finally the kill shot to, to these legacy systems and institutions? And then on a go forward basis, and I realize this is something of a loaded question, on a go forward basis, how are any of these guys going to make money? What at the end of the day is going to be the path to profitability for them? Well, I think a lot of them look at the China example as a, as a case study, and they're trying to build from there. I mean, China, uh, and I, sorry, I keep on going back to these examples, but they're phenomenal examples of how companies have, again, addressed points of friction and then built on top of that to provide effectively situational finance, so the ability to provide the right product at the right time to the right person, and incredibly sticky super apps. So when you talk about Alipay or WeChat Pay, they, they certainly are super apps. I mean, even me, I use WeChat every day here in Singapore to communicate with my staff in China or friends and, and other contacts that I have in China, even to the point that meetings are scheduled on WeChat, which, uh, you know, being a traditionalist and using Outlook as being the center of my scheduling life is, is quite difficult to deal with. But, you know, the fact that these platforms have made themselves so ubiquitous and so uh, integral to individuals' lives is the thing that traditional financial institutions are going to struggle to match. I mean, as, as strong as a player like DBS is in the market here, you know, you're only using DBS maybe once or twice a day when you need to check your balance. Certainly, obviously, you might be using the credit cards on a more frequent basis, but you're not visiting the branch. I, I haven't visited my bank branch here in Singapore, either our, our corporate branch or our, my retail branch, in uh, nine months. And the wow. only region that I did it in nine months ago was because one of our clients sent us a check, if you can believe it. They sent us a check. And so I actually had to go to the branch and deposit the check in the branch. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gone. Uh, you know, the only time I visit is sometimes to ATMs. But, you know, in the last three weeks, I haven't even visited an ATM because I can do everything with a card or on my phone. And so I think that becoming a critical part of an individual or a, a bank, uh, a, um, a company's life is really where the traditional financial players will uh, struggle. So to say that these platforms are competing unfairly, 
you know, maybe you could say that uh, because they're coming. Obviously, they have a technology background. They have a platform in, in ride hailing or whatever the use case is. But in many cases, it's nothing that the banks couldn't have done in the past by partnering or, or establishing business on the side that addressed some of these issues. Now, all that being said, I'm, I'm, I'm very bullish on the future sustainability of banks. I just feel that they will be more utility players. Uh, there's a great corollary here in Singapore that I'm still learning about myself, but uh, a number of years ago, you know, all of the infrastructure here in Singapore was owned by private firms, predominantly Singtel. Over the past of uh, over the past decade, that has all been nationalized, so the infrastructure all belongs to the government in one of the you know the quasi government organization that owns that, and then everybody from Singtel to M1 somehow leases either directly off the government or off another telco to access that infrastructure. Now we could see the same thing happen in banking where, you know, predominantly that custodial nature, that security, that 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 custodial place to put money becomes the primary function of banks. That trust and that balance sheet that they provide becomes the primary function. And then all of these other ancillary services end up with all of the other third-party fintech players. Now, I think the challenge with that is then, do the virtual banks also become commoditized? You know, Are they offering something that's sufficiently different to, to really move the market? If you look at a TransferWise, we're big fans of TransferWise, and we've in fact moved all our personal and business banking over to TransferWise because the fees that we pay there, both in terms of receiving, sending, and the FX rates are just so much better than our traditional banking system. And so, you know, I see a true value in a platform like that. Now, can an N26 or Revolut, you know, replicate that value and become as differentiated as they have become? Unclear. Uh, But certainly, you know, I think the traditional players have their work cut out for them. And how do they make themselves relevant in the future is going to be the biggest challenge. And and, and to that, it's interesting you bring up TransferWise and looking now at the the level of activity or, or inactivity now in the capital markets as it relates to successful IPOs. One of my colleagues back in New York commented that that the kill shot, ironically, to the innovation may be WeWork and, and what happened in, in the IPO being pulled and the subsequent reaction that that's had in the market in terms of valuation. And folks are now starting to talk more about down rounds. How... How much of this phenomenon is is going to be correlated to the capital markets? And I think you and I, you know, we're seeing now in the press more of a push of, of investors asking for profitability because, you know, when we look at fintech in general, I mean, we could still argue. I mean, granted, there are there are examples here and there, but they're very limited in terms of the guys who come through this profitably. And how much of an impact is that going to are the capital markets going to be now in terms of maybe drawing a line in the sand to say you know you're, you're not going to ipo and at the end of the day you're going to have to look at m a or jv or something um how much of that is now stopping you know the process have we really seen the last legs of this this level of innovation in fintech yeah and it's a good point i, th- I think over the past couple of years i mean if i compare the fintech festival and, and events like money 2020 or even cybos in 2015 Fintech was the rage and, you know, you, you, you didn't even need a MVP. You could just walk in with an idea and get funding because the money was so free and out there. But as you rightly point out, there's still a lot of money out there, but it's getting a lot more selective in terms of what it's investing in. And certainly when we look at examples like WeWork, I mean, the valuation around WeWork and some of those, uh, some of its peers that 
I, I mean, to, to be fair, a lot of these soft bank investments are really super high valuations and don't, um, the underlying business don't justify the valuations that they're getting. But, you know, this idea of throwing money after um, a, a company and really scaling beyond what is natural for that company is something that the, you know, the VC industry and the capital markets industry has subscribed to for the past couple of years. And, and we're seeing the, the, the other shoe fall on that, I think, with, with situations like WeWork. So certainly it will make it a lot more difficult for fintechs. Uh, you know, the other challenge for a lot of these companies is what is the exit strategy in Asia? I mean, obviously, Asia is a very disparate market. Uh, you know, if, if Grab wanted to sell, as an example, in a Malaysia or a Singapore, who would buy them? There's mm -hmm. nobody that really has the scale to buy one of those platforms. And indeed, where would they list? Uh, you know, the, many of the exchanges outside of Hong Kong and certainly New York exchanges, whether that be NASDAQ or NYSE, don't have the liquidity to be able to absorb a decacorn um, in those markets. And so what, where these companies go and, and how they continue to, to fundraise kind of stuck not in the middle income trap, but the middle funding trap, where they just keep on going back to the table to 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 raise funding, eventually that's got to stop. And 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 when the tide goes out, I think we'll see who's left with clothes and and a sustainable business model, especially in the space. And the other thing is, you know, the the investors that companies do have. I mean, in many cases, I mean, you know, within a capital market space, there's some companies that have taken investments from other investors, or sorry, inv other investment banks or asset managers, and. You know, when you take investment from one of those platforms, you kind of exclude yourself from the other asset management platforms. Or if you take investments from a technology company like uh, an Accenture or an Intel, then are other technology companies going to want to invest in that as well? So I think a lot of the uh, investment decisions that these fintechs have made over the past couple of years will kind of catch up with them as well. But certainly this this idea of subsidizing uh, the consumers is, is has got to end. Um, that's one thing that we're hearing consistently here is from these companies is how do we move from subsidization to monetization and actually move beyond the subsidizing to get customers because it's incredibly expensive. Uh, you know, Alipay and WeChat have been able to do that in China over a period of a number of years, over a decade now. They've been able to move to that such that they don't really hand out coupons or subsidies to merchants or, or consumers, but what does that mean for Grab and Gojek and GoPay and, and all of the other players around the market? And, and how do they shift from this subsidizing to drive business to a more organic growth strategy? I, I remembered to your point, I remembered one of the most fascinating meetings I had. Um, I have to be careful how I phrase this. Uh, this year, <laughs> looking in hindsight, was uh, several U.S. fintechs who, who um, uh, you know, were highlighting their model, and they were highlighting the model to to. Uh, and again, I'll keep this anonymous, but but one of the super apps, and and it was so fascinating, Zenon, to see. You know, the U.S. firm was all proud of the fact that you know we we got our client acquisition costs to this number, and the super app was turning around saying that's great because ours is zero. We you know we've acquired everybody. <laughs> There's nothing left for us to do. We can to your point. We can simply monetize what we have now. And, and it was amazing to see the reaction of the Americans because they, they, they still weren't at a point in their life cycle where, where they could even think about that. You know, client acquisition was still a big part of their, uh, their mindset and their model. You know, the idea of zero was, was completely foreign to them. And, and, and along that, what would you, I'll sneak in one last question here if you can indulge me. Along that, so if you back to the whiteboard, you're sitting in front of the, 
executives, the American executives as they're looking at Asia and what would be the thing, and I realize this is hard because I could easily see you saying four or five, but what would be the thing that you would say to them, look, it's a, you know, you guys are getting ready for the weekend. And if I'm going to have you think about one thing with Asia, it is this, this is top of mind. You need to be thinking about this. What is that? What is the one big thought you would have them leave the room with to say, okay, send and just push me over the wall. Now I understand why we need to focus on this. Yeah. And, and I apologize for giving a very trite answer, but it's digital. I mean, it's, it's the way that the mobile phone is the primary device of choice for hundreds of millions, if not billions of people across the region. And, and that, that mindset is a big shift uh, for, for many Americans. I mean, I know growing up and even when I go back, you know, the, the idea of an SMS uh, a number of years ago is just something that wasn't done on a regular basis. And now, you know, now they've adapted WhatsApp and all the other messaging platforms. But even more so here in Asia, the, the mobile phone is the center of the social and increasingly financial lives of individuals. And so any strategy that comes to market has to be mobile first, it has to be digital native, and it has to be addressing the needs of these millennials and these digital first individuals that are coming to market. That's, a, that's, that's the critical success factor for any fintech that's coming into the market, because if you're not there, you're not anywhere with the consumer base across Asia. And so I think, you know, increasingly as a customer experience, as a data gathering channel, as a way to connect with your customers, the mobile phone will only increase in importance for Asia uh, as we go forward into 2020. Good deal. Well, on that note, Zenon, again, a, in a lightning conversation as always, and, and, and as we always talk, I always find myself with another, I wish I had another hour with you. So we'll, we'll use this as a, Good stopping point. Again, for those who know you, we, we merely just saw the very, very, very tip of the iceberg in terms of anywhere this conversation could have gone on these issues. So thank you for your time. Um, and to our viewers, or I should say our listeners, uh, thank you again for tuning in this week to Unhedged. We'll look forward to more. And Zen, and I hope I can coerce you into coming back again before year end. Is that something we can, uh, we can keep our fingers crossed for? Certainly. Really enjoyed it this time, Frank. Good deal. Send it again. Thank you. And everyone have a great weekend. We'll talk to you soon. And that'll do it for this week's segment of Unhedged. As always, thank you for tuning in and we'll look forward to talking and speaking next time. Take care.